Hi, I'm supernatural thriller author J.F. Penn, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi, everyone. This is Genretainment, and we're your hosts, Marks and Julie. And what you heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song from our web series, Reality on Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend Tishan Hardy. Today on Genretainment, we speak with YouTuber, podcaster, and author Michael Leron. We had him on four years ago, which I yeah. can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> Since then, he's been wow. a writing machine, writing a number of nonfiction books, fiction novels, doing podcasts. He's got a YouTube channel, all sorts of stuff. We had a great time chatting with him. We talk about being an indie author. He shares writing tips. We discuss overcoming fear, do a little writer therapy, and go on a tangent about our rabbits and so much more. (laughs) And we're lining up a number of new episodes starting with this one. And we'll start coming out every other week with a new episode, plus an occasional bonus episode. We do want to apologize for delaying airing this episode. We recorded it late last year. I got super sidetracked with the film festival I was directing and my uh, last term in the MFA program. Yay, it's over. Congratulations, though. <laughs> we do mention the MFA in the interview, and I'm happy to tell you all that I graduated in January with a Master in Fine Arts in Writing Popular Fiction. Yay. So we got, we got some fun stuff planned for the podcast uh, now that I have some time freed up. Yes, and you'll notice a few fun changes in the coming episodes. Plus, we have some fun projects we'll be announcing this year, but we'll stop there and start with our interview this week with Michael Laron. Enjoy. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Well, we're happy to have you. Yeah, we're excited to have you back. I looked to see how long it was last time. It was actually 2016, so it's been a while. It has been. <laughs> it has, has been a while, but, but we've kept in touch on Twitter, so it doesn't seem like it's been as long. Yeah. Yeah. 2016, this is 2020. Well, pff, hardly anything's happened since then. <laughs> no, I mean, it's been completely boring. Especially, especially this year. At home all the time now. <laughs> uh, uh, so, touch base with you a little bit, because we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it later, too. You know, since we talked last, I got accepted into an MFA program, offered popular fiction, which I wouldn't have done anything that wasn't popular fiction, because... I don't see the point, yeah. <laughs> at least from making money, right? And then um, at this point, we really want degrees that might be useful for a career and <laughs> making money. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, and then and I'm going to graduate here in a few months. I'm going to launch my thesis, urban fantasy novel, and Julie's going to edit. And I'm currently editing. And we're going to co-write another series together. <laughs> Up till three in the morning, doing so. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why I mention all that is because you know you're one of those. People, whether you know it or not, sort of a mentor type person because mm-hmm. I read all your nonfiction books. I listen to your watch your YouTube show. I, I know to your, your voice because I'm used to hearing it, hear you from the other room and go, that's Michael Iran on, on the television. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and, you know, and I've referenced you in my MFA essays about mm-hmm. stuff and uh, and took some stuff we're going to talk about here in just a minute. So I just want to let you know. And I know you've been up to tons since you last appeared. Nah, he hasn't been doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, first off, congratulations. That's I was just taking all that in. That's that's amazing. The MFA program. You're going to graduate here really soon. University. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's awesome. get forward. I'm excited because Seaton's my maiden name. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's, he that's, should have gotten uh, some sort of scholarship just for that. Yeah. <laughs> there, there should be some money they should throw it throw your way for that. Exactly. Right? But either way, you, you worked your way through it. You're almost done now, and you got your thesis going. That's exciting. Thank you for the kind words. That that's 
that's awesome. I, it, it's it's really cool when people tell me like the impact um, that I've had on you know. I mean, I I like to think I play a small part in some of it, but I just kind of do it because it's fun for me, and it's it's cool to to hear that. So thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. and you know, you and Joanna Penn also. I went ahead and joined the Alliance of Independent Authors, mm-hmm. and I'm very you know, I'm, I'm going to probably do a hybrid approach, but I am very much about um, indie author. Well, his thesis is actually just book one of a, of a ser- planned series. Yeah, and, and part of that's because, you know, you and, and Joanna Penn are big proponents of, of the Alliance of Independent Authors. And yes, stuff. and I have actually threatened if he ever tries to, ca- uh, feels like caving and going with traditional publishing, I have refused to continue editing. <laughs> hey, that's 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 not a bad idea. And, I'm uh, like, I, if you ever begin to cave, I will leave you high and dry. <laughs> okay, so you know you've been doing a lot of stuff. Can you just uh, now anybody who wants to know a lot more about your background, check out our past episode from 2016. It's like 100. And, it's in the 120s, and online. early 120s. Yeah, online. But uh, just to kind of touch a little bit base on why, because you're you're like 100 percent indie author if I'm not mistaken. And can you just tell us a little Yay. bit about why you chose to be an indie author and why someone should, you know, a consider pioneer. that. Yeah, you're definitely yeah, a pioneer. Yeah, yeah. Ironically, I'm 99% indie now. So um, I, I actually just published a book with the Alliance of Independent Authors and it they, they're publishing it for me. Ah. So cool. <laughs> that's right. it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of ironic that like <laughs> I published a book with Ally and we're all about self-publishing, but... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm chuckling. It's hilarious. I love it's, it. It's pretty hilarious, but but it was really more of a donation to them to help them out. And so, um, yeah, I've been up to a lot over the past, uh, you know, four years since the last time we spoke. I I chose indie mainly because when I first started, I tried to get my books out to agents. I tried to go the traditional publishing route, and you know, you knock on all these doors, and nobody opens the door, and I got rejection after rejection. And I thought, you know, it's, it's got to be me. There's something wrong with me because everybody else is getting acceptance letters. Everybody else is out there doing it. And I'm just here writing these stories in science fiction and fantasy. And I, I've learned over the years that it wasn't me. It had nothing to do with me at all. In fact, it had zero to do with me. And I decided that if I was going to go into business for myself, I am going to do it the way I want to do it and not play by somebody else's rules. And Amen. I can't remember. Yeah, it, absolutely. And, and Marks, I can't remember if you and I talked about this the last time we were on, but um, I had a near-death experience in 2012. And um, I, I, was out, I was out on a nice dinner with my wife and uh, felt ill. And lo and behold, I ended up in the hospital for a month. And oh. I, I remember being on my hospital bed and I was like doped up on morphine and just staring at the wall. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And I swore on that hospital bed that I was going to become a writer. I was going to stop sending mag- stuff out to magazines, stop sending stuff out to traditional publishers, and I was going to do it my way. And in many ways, that was one of the best decisions in my life that I ever made that really set the foundation for me. So to, to answer your question on what was it that decided, you know, made the chips fall indie for you, for me, it was really a life and death experience. That is so awesome. I, I have so much respect for you because I, I actually almost died in 2016, it was. Um, oh, wow. And yeah. uh, I have yet to follow through completely on 
You've not written 50,000 books. <laughs> I had a similar thing going, but I haven't accomplished these things that I want to do. And, and most, and a lot of it actually had to do with writing it. I have accomplished very little compared to you. So congratulations. <laughs> oh, wait, to, to, to every, everybody has their own challenges, you know, and um, especially with the, the near death experiences. And it was really eye opening for me. And, you know, at that point I was working a dead end job. I was just working this just crappy job. And, you know, you, wake up and you go to work and you come home and you sit in front of the TV for the rest of the night. And I'm like, I just, there has to be something more. I can't do this. <laughs> I, I gotta, I have to do more. And so exactly, um, I, I like, I like the freedom. I like the, I like the ability that I can choose what I want to write. And sometimes the things I write, people don't want to buy. And sometimes the things I write, I don't think they're going to sell at all. And they become what they perform better than I ever dreamed. And that scares a lot of people, you know, just to candidly, because every decision you make is completely yours. Right. But I happen to like that. I like to live on that. I like to live on the edge, so to speak. Well, and it's not just living on the edge. It's actually taking back some of your power yeah. and control because, you know, my, my image, mental image of traditional publishing is, is you going hat in hand, you know, down on one knee, on both knees, you know, begging, will you please let me be a writer? Please, I'll write whatever <laughs> you want. And I'll yep. change all of my, all of my, the things that I wanted to write about to suit you. Please, 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 will you please let me publish my book and only get maybe 10% of the profit? <laughs> and I'll get all my copyrights. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I'll give you complete control. Please take complete control of all of my intellectual property. Yeah, I, uh, uh, I, I, I have a mentor. He's he's he said he's he says exactly what you just. <laughs> yeah, uh, going to traditional publishers with your copper cup. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. asking him for asking him for begging him for handouts, and you end up with nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's just you're just an indentured servitude, and and then they want you to thank you for it. <laughs> well, I think that's part of my motivation too of doing indie. When I say hybrid, like I have a bunch of short stories, yeah. I'm gonna try traditionally publish those, and there yeah. may be a novel at some point that I'll try uh, hybrid. <laughs> and Julie's like, "Don't do it." Uh, you can get your own editor. <laughs> we'll see how things go, but uh, <laughs> it's not gonna be worth the financial. Financially, it won't be worth the time it takes to edit it that way. Then, but uh, you know, it's amazing how far we've gone with authors because I was reading about Edgar Allan Poe when it was like a book about him, and you know, he was a big fighter for for uh, authors getting mm -hmm. paid more and then back when he was first Bless starting there was very little copyright laws like people were just uh just ripping off british writers or just bringing that over for free and <laughs> the rubber barons weren't yeah. just on the railroads <laughs> so it was hard for american yeah. authors to come out with stuff and you know so it's it's nice to see that something like alliance of independent authors exists and, and yeah. that and that you can make a career and you have options now you can control your uh, your rights i guess yeah. what I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask, would you like me to explain what Ally is for anyone who doesn't yes, know? Yes, please. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure how much you've talked about them on your show, but um, the Alliance of Independent Authors is a nonprofit organization for self-published writers. So if you think about like carpenters or electricians, they usually have like trade associations where they do continuing education and things like that. And the whole premise is, well, why don't we have that for writers? And so this is an organization that advocates and provides information for self-published writers to achieve 
ethics and excellence in self-publishing. And so mm -hmm. Ally puts out a lot of really good information on how to self-publish with style, how to find editors, how to find cover designers, um, copyright things. And so you can find them if anyone's interested at selfpublishingadvice.org. So and I just thought I, I, had, I had to throw the plug in there. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the way you mentioned it, you know, like having like the other organizations to support because it's, it, it is, it's, those are, they're master craftsmen, you know, and that's very similar. Writing is an art, but it's also a craft. It's a trade union for a different kind of craftsman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I love, you mentioned one of your books, you know, when you join, you get access to, you can buy them separately, of course, but when you join, you get access to all these different guidebooks that are really full of resources, including, mm -hmm. including one of yours. And uh, I think Ally offers a lot for what you pay for. So. And I think a lot of people don't understand how self-publishing has changed in recent years. Um, I think so many people are hanging on to the old stereotype of, oh, they're the people who couldn't hack it in the real publishing world. So yep. they had to publish their own little book that is just basically like a little notebook and for their friends and family. And they don't understand that, I mean, as, as critical as I am of things like the internet and, and social media and the terrible things it's done to our society, <laughs> uh, a good, on the flip side of that, the other side of the coin is that so many more opportunities for entrepreneurship have been opened for everybody as a result and that the game has changed and it's, it's not just the, the people who couldn't hack it, it's people who choose to be their own basically small business owner as well as being a writer and to just sort of take their own fate in their own hands and go it and do it themselves. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. That's that's such a great point because when I started doing it, it, it there was still a tinge of that. Like it was, oh, well, you're a self-published writer. It's kind of like Thanksgiving where you've got the adults at the big table and you've got <laughs> yes. the little kids at the little table. Everybody just expects you to go to the little table and, you know, you're, you're looked down upon. People kind of, they kind of look at you sideways like you're doing what? Yeah. You know, and, and, and now I found that the majority of people still do not understand what self-publishing is and still cannot wrap their head around it, but they're more accepting of it. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And from what we have been able to gather, the majority of authors who are successfully working as authors primarily, not writing on the side while holding down a day job, but able to write full-time professionally, tend to be in the independent at the kitty table, at the independent yeah. <laughs> and in the independent market. Because like we said, the traditional publishing, they take, they do much less work, but they take almost all of the profits from, yeah. from the writer. And the writer does not hold on to the rights of their own intellectual property that they created. And so more, the more successful financially and those who are able to, most people uh, who want to be authors, want to be writers, want to do it for their primary profession. And you have a greater likelihood of accomplishing that as an independent writer in this day and age. Yeah. And it's funny because all those authors at the big table are now coming to the little table. Yeah. The little table's cool now. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, every, every, everything you said is, is 
it, it's it's exactly it. It's more control, and it's more control over your copyright, more control over your money, more control over how you run your business, more control over your marketing. I mean, it, some people see it as a giant burden. I see it as that's how you run a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and they're afraid of the marketing often, but um, even if you go the traditional publishing route, you are responsible for the the vast majority of the marketing out there they're, they don't yeah. they don't do the marketing for you yeah. you you are required to do most of that yourself as well and I think many sort of more introverted writers find that intimidating and that is what puts them off of it but they don't realize that same burden will be on their shoulders if they go the traditional route yep I feel like traditional publishers at some point are going to have to change what they do to stay relevant at some point so yeah. I know we it will. It is a changing world. And, yeah. and if you don't adapt, it, you know, your business will not survive. I know at our last residency at the university, I had, we had, we always have guest speakers. We had Melissa Marr who does like um, YA and paranormal romance and fairy tale reimaginings and stuff like that. Anyway, she's a traditional publisher, oh, the, but, yeah, but she said that like her next, her urban fantasy series she's going to start is going to be uh, indie. And and I asked her like, well, why why'd you decide that? And she's like, well, you know, it's urban fan. A lot of publishers aren't accepting urban fantasy, even though there's still a market out there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, and I know a lot of people who are making money off of urban fantasy, you know, indie. So I'm just going to do that and be hybrid. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know, it's true. Traditional publishers have uh, kind of turned their backs on urban fantasy right now. Um, that's going to change, though. Well, I found everything is cyclical. Yeah. yeah, you know, it, it, vampires are out now, but all it's all it's going to take is the next New York Times bestseller to have a well, vampire you know, in it. That's because yeah. people started thinking vampires go to high school and they sparkle in the frickin' sunlight. I know, right? So I mean, I'm sorry, those vampires don't deserve to survive. <laughs> <laughs> right. This this is a very this is a tender subject for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, they come back every 10 years or so, so we're, yeah, we're probably due for another resurgence. <laughs> well, I bet you once Jim Butcher ends Dresden Files and decides to, and he does something different, suddenly they'll be like looking for the next Jim Butcher probably, so. Well, and then that, that's <clears throat> another thing. You know, traditional publishers, they they say they want originality, but it's very similar to... Um, Hollywood. Film, yeah, film and television, where you know, like X Files got really big. No, we're looking for the next X Files, and they missed the point. The point is, before X Files came along, there was no next X Files. The whole point of it was that it was completely original for the time, and that's why it was so popular. And instead of learning the lesson of wow, we should take a chance on something that's really good quality, but completely different than anything that's been popular before. Instead, they keep trying to create clones of something that had been successful, completely missing the point of the lesson they should have learned, which was when it became popular, it wasn't the next whatever. It was its own original thing. Yeah. You know, which is kind of a... I know a lot of your fiction, Michael, is very original. (laughs) You got some... Oh, thanks. We need to talk... (laughs) We need to have you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about... Because you've been writing a lot of nonfiction books right now. Yeah. See, he's listeners. He's very versatile. Yeah, uh, I mean, be- between your nonfiction books and you have a bunch more, or you've been working on a bunch of them, and then you have you got your YouTube channel with mm-hmm. great tips, and then you got a podcast, at least one podcast. I think you just you have the daily one. I'm not sure if you have other podcasts. 
Yeah, um, I, have two, I have three podcasts. Oh, my Don't. gosh. I need to check up on my subscriptions, make sure I got them all. Oh, you've been a little busy. <laughs> what are those podcasts? Yeah, I've, I've got a writing tip of the day, which you, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a writing tip every Monday through Friday in about five minutes or less. And then I've got another show called The Writer's Journey. And uh, that is basically me turning on the microphone and just talking about what's on my mind as a working writer mm-hmm. every Thursday. And then I've got another show with the Alliance of Independent Authors, actually. Uh, Orna, Orna, the founder uh, and director, Orna Ross, and I, we answer the most common self-publishing questions. Hmm. So that's called the Ask Ally member Q&A podcast. Oh, I do listen to that, too. I forgot about that. <laughs> um, yeah. he's, he's been a little busy. <laughs> well, Michael's got, like, I don't know how you do it, to be honest with you, because you also have... Uh, I think you're, are you still in law school? Yes, I am. Oh, yeah. you got to be kidding me. Yeah, and married and have a kid and everything. I don't know how you do it all. So time management skills, this is the guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, technically, yeah, I we just, have three children, I just, do it. just none of them are human. <laughs> Cats are a little bit easier, I think. We, have, we got a rabbit. I have a rabbit, too. <gasps> oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, what kind of rabbit do you guys have? Um, She is um a six-year-old albino, half- okay. Uh, lion head, half mini hotel. Oh, nice. Yeah, we, we've got a Flemish giant. Oh, wow. Oh, See, wow. we adopted her when she was five. Bless her heart, she'd never been spayed. She had been neglected and abused. And I still have scars where she drew blood many times on me, and I thought she just was one of those vampire human flesh-eating rabbits. We, we made a lot of Mighty <laughs> Python jokes. Yes, I was like, nice. I need the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Um, and it took about four and a half, almost five months before she stopped trying to kill me. And she finally relaxed and realized no one's going to hurt her. And she can, you know, just be a happy little bunny. Um, she's 4.2 pounds and we were all quite terrified of her at first. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She, I mean, it wasn't her fault. She'd been mistreated. She'd actually been neglected and, and outright abused. We found, you know, we realized based on. You know. And she would flinch a lot. When she, we yeah, her, so. she 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 panicked and bit me, and then she flinched like I was going to hit her. And then she also they had no idea, so they couldn't tell us she has a, a vision impairment. So oh. that she'd get startled, you know, when you go to pet her, moving like you would around a regular sighted bunny, but she wouldn't see your hand coming, and then just suddenly be touched, um, which would be frightening. Yeah, I can and um, so we've had her for about a year and a half. How long have you had your rabbit? Yeah, what about yours? Yeah, we, we had a, we've had our rabbit for about two years. Oh. Uh, she is she used to be a teacher's rabbit, if you can believe oh. that. So she used to actually be in a, be in a school. So she loves children, hates adults. <laughs> 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 kind of one of those things, but uh, yeah, she's funny. she I think she's five years old. And um, she's gigantic. She's probably like seven pounds. And people, yeah. I, had a, I had an electrician come over once and he's like, is that a rabbit or is it a kangaroo? <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah, said, and, well played. And people get really confused when they see them out hopping around, you know, it's like, no, they're litter box trained. They can get out, and, you yeah. know. Um, uh, all right. So you're nonfiction, but I don't know how we got rabbits. Oh, because <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you know how it is. We went, if someone says they got hole. a rabbit, they're my friend for life. <laughs> Uh, so, so what's some of your recent nonfiction books you like to mention? I have a number of nonfiction books. I, my big thing now since the pandemic started is helping people get out of their own way because everyone is at home. Everyone is staring at the blank monitor or the, the cursor on the monitor, and they're trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do? Can I follow that dream if, if, if 
there's any time to do it, now is the time. And I'm trying to get people to get over the fear and the self-doubt because I believe that if you can, if, if you can, you can never eliminate fear from your life. Fear is ever morphing and it's ever changing. Mm-hmm. But if you can tamp it down and get a, get a handle on it, then anything is possible for you. And I, you know, I used to struggle with self-doubt and fear and um, I've written over 50 books now. And so I don't really worry too much about it. And so I have a book out, it's called Mental Models for Writers. And it's, it's 73 ways to elevate your thinking, create, improve your writing and capture success. And so I, I was looking at a lot of famous people and it's like, what is it that makes them successful? And I don't know if you're, you, I'm sure you've heard of Warren Buffett, right? <laughs> you know, billionaire. Yeah, who's that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, his second in command, Charlie Munger, uh, famously, he he proposed this idea of mental models, and it, it's this idea of keeping a latticework of ideas that you can use. It, it, they're almost like hats. If if you need help with s- some sort of business problem, you put on a hat, which which represents a way that someone famous or or a mathematician or an econ- economist thought about, and it helps you see the problem in a different way. Same thing with psychology. There's there's all sorts of really interesting ideas in the world of psychology. Why not take those and bring those into the writing world? And how would that change how you saw a problem when you're looking at the murky middle of your manuscript, for example? What if what was holding you back was the laws of psychology and not anything that had to do with you know, your own feelings of not being able to, to write your book, right? And so it, it, it's, it's a kind of a different ideas that you can use as a writer in all areas of your writing life to help you get past some of those blocks and do things that you didn't think that you could do previously. Great, yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, that's one of them. I've, I've got a bunch, a bunch of others. I, I'm, I'm kind of in a, a mode right now where with the pandemic, I was like, you know, I need to write more books. So I, I've written probably like five or six books this summer. And so I'm going to be publishing them all. Um, and they all have to do with writing tips. Um, I, I turned one of my po- one of my podcasts, Writing Tip of the Day, into a, into a book. So it recaps all of the writing tips for the year into a single book, which cool. would be helpful for people that maybe haven't heard the show or don't want to listen to all of the backlist episodes. Um, I've got I've got another a series that I'm launching. It's um, people have asked me a lot about how, like, if you're brand new to writing, how do you start? Mm-hmm. And what are all the things that you have to learn? Because there are a lot of things that you have to learn. It's not just craft, it's marketing, it's business, it's copyright, it's contracts. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, they, they asked me, how do you, how do how do we solve this problem? And I was like, well, I could put together a list of bullet points and, you know, share those with you. But I'm like, that's really, really boring. So I came up with this idea of um, what if you could take all of the things that you had to learn as a writer and what if you could present them in a different way? So I took things like writing craft and business and you know, distribution and I turned them into like these vacation destinations. And it's like this these fictional places. And um, I, I had some maps illustrated. And so I wrote a book called The Indie Author Atlas. Uh-huh. And it's your guide to the five continents of the writing world. And it's like, it's like, it's written in like the style of a lonely planet travel guide. And it takes you, it starts off in like the strategy islands and all the things you need to get, learn to get your mindset right as an author. And it, it, and it takes you through the world. 
And so, um, yeah, it's kind of a fun way, fun, kind of a fun project to work That's on. Cool. Well, and I it's love the way, way you that. were talking about that because, um, you know, really, if you want to write, but you're afraid of getting started or, or whatever, you know, there's always going to be a reason that it's a great time to start. And there's always going to be a reason that it's a terrible time to start. And that fear isn't going to go away depending on what's going on at that moment. It's just going to change. If fear's getting in the way, that fear is only going to morph with yep. each evolving situation. And so, you know, it's sort of like the old, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself thing. You know, yeah. until, until you learn to, to push through the fear, the fear is always going to be there. It'll just change to match whatever the situation is at the moment. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I was, um, I, I, have you ever heard of Gavin DeBecker? I wish I could see us so. and sound really smart. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I haven't talked to very many people who have, but he, is, he used to be the, um, the head security guard for, head security guy for Oprah. And oh. so he, it was his job to make sure that like Oprah was safe and, you know, there's a lot of crazy people out yeah, there. That would be pretty, actually not an easy job. Yeah, it would be a weird job. And so now he's the, the number one security guy for Jeff Bezos, actually. Oh, wow. And I heard an interview with him the other day and, and he was talking to your earlier point, Julie, about fear. And he said that there's a difference between fear, like real fear and anxiety, like yeah. real fear is you're walking in the forest one day and you see a saber-toothed tiger <laughs> and you're about to die. Like that's real fear. And that fear is, it, it's designed to save you. It, it will, it will help you right. do things that you didn't think you could do in order to save your life. See, we conflate that with anxiety. And he said something really cool in an interview. He said, true fear is something that will take your life. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is something that you made up or imagined. Yeah. So, what I tell writers is, is this what whatever it is that you're worried about right now, are you going to die at the end of it? <laughs> or is it that you're just imagining it or it's something that you're worried about? And I, and I use those terms, right? Um, and nine times out of 10, well, actually nine point nine, 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 nine times out of 10, it's, it's something that we imagine, you know, it, no one's going to come to your house and shoot you or come to your house with a mob and pitchforks because you wrote an urban fantasy novel, you know, that did so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. You know, and it, that's, that's what I, I'm just trying to get people yeah. to understand. There's nothing to be afraid of. I think we confuse a lot of things with fear. One, one of the reasons why I really want to start out of the gate with my thesis with indie rather than traditional is because I feel like, and it's nothing. It's not the fall of the school program or anything. They do teach about indie author stuff. They had Rachel Heron as a guest speaker. I don't know if you know her. Oh, oh. Yeah. I do. I, yeah, very familiar with Rachel. Yeah, and uh, you know, so they, they do try to show both sides, mm. but well, somewhat, you know. But um, although most many of the mentors are primarily traditional yeah. authors, but I see all my fellow students, or many, not just my class, but different classes ahead of me and behind me. And they all focus on this traditional thing because they feel like they need to, for whatever reason, they feel like maybe that's the only way to make money or, or that. Prove something. Or prove that they're yeah. really an author or whatever it is. And then what happens to some of them is that they just end in a, they get in a cycle of like, you know, submit, get rejected, make some more changes, submit, get rejected, you make more changes. And then so at some point they just start to give up a little mm -hmm. bit, you know, and they start doing something else and, uh. Uh, and I hate to see that because I'm just like, you guys made, you worked on 
the story for like two years. All this trouble, plus. you might as well just publish it. Yeah, just publish well, it. And <laughs> Michael, what you said reminded me of something my grandma used to tell me when if I was nervous about you know speaking in front of somebody or whatever, she'd go, "Well, well, Julie, they can't eat you." She's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, "They can't eat you. What's the problem?" <laughs> exactly. Yep. I can still I can still hear my grandma going. What's, what are you worried about? They can't eat you. I mean, just do it. I'm going to start using that. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that is Southern Indiana wisdom right there. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. They're not going to eat you, you know, but I think a, a lot of a lot of it with in, in academia, at least, is it's this thing about pride. You know, you, you don't want to self-publish your book because that that means that you've you feel in some way that you're you're not good enough. I didn't think of it you know, that way, but yeah, pride. At least that's that's my perception. I I think that I'll, it's it's one it's it's weird because I I got my start in academia and my first mentors were very traditional published focused and they were they're saying, "Hey, you know, I don't think you should give up on traditional publishing." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "No, I think you're wrong." <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so many of uh, people that I, I kind of came up with had this feeling that they just they just can't accept self-publishing. Even though it might be viable, it just doesn't feel right. It feels dirty, mm-hmm. you know? And that's not true, but it's kind of unfortunate to see people when they have a career opportunity potentially to just shut the door and not go through it, kind of like to your point, Marks. And, you know, yeah. hopefully, hopefully they'll come around and, and kind of see that this is something that you can do and it goes back to your point of getting out of your own way yeah yeah there's a lot of flexibility of indie authors like i've told people before uh who maybe struggle with traditional publishing i said well why don't you just publish it and like well if it's not good or whatever well i mean you could just you know unpublish it (laughs) or you can unpublish it and then make changes and then republish it and they're just looking at me like what are you you talking about hire your own editor you don't have to be married exactly (laughs) you don't have to marry them you can just pay them (laughs) but yeah so and that's yeah. You know, I mean, that's foreign to traditional publishing. It's <laughs> impossible to do some of those things. But. Yeah, and and I had a mentor tell me once. He he said, "Think about it like this: If you publish a book and no one buys it, that means no one knows you published a book." <laughs> <laughs> I really, love I mean, it. if you think about it. So, what do you really Please. have to lose? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, people think that like with writing. It's like we all have day jobs, right? When we started our day jobs, we weren't perfect at those jobs. We had to get training. We had to be in those jobs for a little bit, maybe get promoted and climb up the ladder a little bit. Like you don't become an electrician on – you don't wake up one day and say, I want to be an electrician. Like there's training. There's things you have to do. There's hours of of training and practicum and and practical experience that you have to get. Well, it's the same thing with being a writer. Like your your book is not going to be perfect right out of the gate. You might not have the greatest command of storytelling abilities when you first start, and that's okay. And I think people, they, they, they want to be perfect right out of the gate with that first book, not realizing that that's actually a not realistic expectation. Right. And the, like me, like I always, once I get started, I just start comparing what I've written to other things I've read that other people have published. And without realizing in that moment I wasn't reading their first draft. <laughs> you yeah. know? I'm yeah. not, well I suppose Ray Bradbury you could argue probably it might have been. <laughs> I think he 
he pretty much uh, didn't like to do rewrites, and he came out with Fahrenheit 451. Yep. Bastard, but All he was great. Draft. <laughs> but um, yeah, but but the majority of the time, you know, you're you're not reading their first draft. It, you know, you don't know what it started out as. Yeah, they got an editor, they got feedback, you know. Yeah, they did, went through rewrite, and, <clears throat> and, you know, so stop comparing what you're coming up with as soon as Penn hits the paper with, you know, something that's been edited and, and beta read and rewritten and, and then, you know, published. <laughs> yeah, we, we get stuck in the theater of our own minds, don't we, yeah. when it comes to when it comes to that sort of thing and comparisonitis and it's uh it's all a real very real problem if you can get over that it, everything is the whole world is your oyster i think most i think most writers need therapy is what i've been hearing <laughs> it's, we all need it's funny you assistant. say that it's we absolutely own, true yeah we all need our own little um support group <laughs> yeah i had a mentor tell me once he said when you start becoming successful is when you really need the therapy and yeah. my head, my head exploded. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, he was so right. <laughs> he was so right. I can, I can believe it because having never been successful, I wouldn't know what to expect. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and trolls start to come out of the woodworks um, when you're more successful. People start taking shots at you. And there's all sorts of other things with money that you have to think about. I mean, it, it can be devastating to someone. And I use that word deliberately. Um, and I think, I think every writer should have, should get therapy. You know, I started therapy last year just for some personal reasons. And it was one of the best things I ever did. Exactly. And I think it made my writing better. Like some people think, Oh, I don't want to do it because you know, my writing will be, it'll make my writing worse because I'm so messed up. That's what makes my stuff good, you know? And oh, really? I think it's people the opposite. Think that? I've had someone tell me that once. Yeah. Oh, believe it or not. Bless their heart. And I was like, well, help me understand something here. <laughs> you have all of these pent up emotions and it's probably causing you problems in other areas of your life. If you maybe saw somebody and got some help, maybe that would maybe give you a clearer mind when you came to the page. Right. I don't think a disordered a, mind and a crushed spirit is going to equal greater success on the page. I don't think so either, you know, <laughs> and, and there's, there's a, such a stigma around therapy. Oh yeah. You know, you know, I, I, um, I wrote, I wrote a book and it was the book that kind of changed everything for me. It's, it's called be a writing machine. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I wrote this book in 2018 because I, I, my, my biological parents divorced when I was a baby. So I never got to know my biological father and I kind of carried these really bad emotions with me throughout my life. Like it was like, I kind of normalized it and it wasn't okay. Like just not having a father in the home and it just, it causes problems, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I tried to find him in 2018 and I found him on Facebook and then he, he wanted nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that was uh, pretty devastating, you know? And so I, I wrote this book as a way to help me get out of those feelings. Like I just was not okay for a while. Yeah. And writing is what helped me with that. It, like in, in many respects, it, writing itself is therapy. Mm. And I wrote that book and it was kind of part bi biographical, autobiographical part, um, my manifesto on, on how to write faster, how to write smarter, all that stuff. And to my surprise, the book kind of took off. Oh, cool. <laughs> and I, I think it was because 
like it was it was just honest, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it just kind of told things like it was. And if I hadn't tried to wrestle with those emotions in some way, I would have never written that book. And, you know, it it wouldn't have done so many really good things in my life. And so I just tell people it it's never going to hurt you to sit down and talk to someone, even if you're not dealing with any major problems right now. Mm-hmm. There's no stigma around it. It's it's a good thing for people to go out there and work on themselves. Yeah. And, it, you know, you had to learn that, you know, his problems, his not wanting to know you, that, that was because of issues he's got. You know, that exactly. was his problem. He's carrying around some baggage. He's got these issues. And, you know, you can't take someone else's issues on as your own. Yeah. You know, but. Which is what, exactly what we do, though. You know, yeah. and that's. That's that's why we need the help. Yeah, but it's so much easier to see that in somebody else's situation. Well, when you think about exactly. f- <laughs> fiction, in many ways, if you have like a, a strong story arc, internal story arc, you're you're like a therapist for your characters, yeah. right? Helping them figure out sure. how to repair their wound, psychological wounds. And I wonder if that's why there are so many things about you know where I'm from, my home that I that I love, but uh, one of the things there is a huge stigma still around getting any sort of mental health treatment and there's a stigma around having mental illness even just struggling emotionally with something and there's also you know so many people don't understand why you would want to write or read fiction it's like well it's not real what's the point you know oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, such a grounded mentality you know but it's like well because you know you can get something out of it <laughs> You know, it it can better your the soul of the person writing it and the person reading it as well. I've been writing a lot, and as you know, Urban Fantasy a lot of times is first person. So so I've been enjoying writing first person, but I've been trying to do multiple POVs, and I try to do these very dramatically different kind of characters, and I find it really interesting to get in their perspective and try to just see how they're different and and. I don't know. It's find each other voice. Yeah, find their voice, and also, um, also, it's fun because it's almost like I'm acting in a way, like I'm oh, yeah. act. So do those characters. So it's kind of kind of cool. And but acting's fun. We're getting close to the end, so there's a couple of things I really want to make sure we cover. We've covered a lot of his nonfiction, but yeah, we have so, not covered enough of his fiction. Yeah. Well, I want to cover. There's an online course you did that oh, I yeah. took when you first did it. Yeah. And it's it's not it's well it is urban fantasy but it wasn't specifically necessarily urban fantasy. Uh, can you t- tell me a little bit more about that? Tell them a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'll give the uh, quick uh, elevator pitch for it. So <laughs> I, I did a course. Uh, it was called how to how to write to market without selling your soul. So there's this we we make it a dichotomy. I don't really think it's a dichotomy in in our industry that you either write your passion and make no money or write to market and make a ton of money even though you might not like what you're writing. And so I was like, how, how, that's, that's kind of BS. (laughs) So (laughs) how do I, how do I prove this wrong or how can I try to anyway? And so I put together this course and it was me trying to figure out how I could write a book at the intersection of art and commerce, something that I truly enjoyed and that also could make me some money. And so I wrote a book, it was called the shadow deal the good necromancer book one. And it's about a necromancer who's an ex necromancer because he dabbled into the dark arts and, um, his family ended up getting killed because of his, some a mistake that he made, uh, making a deal with a demon. And he's spent the last seven years repenting for his sins. And he gets dragged back into the dark arts to save an old friend. Mm. And I decided to, to, to write this. And I wrote the whole book in public 
So I, I wrote all the chapters and I would upload the chapters as I finished them. And I would talk about what I was doing to market the book, what I was doing to make some artistic decisions in the story that were very to the market. Right. And uh, I, I basically documented my entire process of coming up with the novel, writing it, editing it, hiring the cover designer, hiring the editor and how what I, the things that I was doing to market and position books so that you could see some of the decisions I was making behind the scenes about the cover, for example, or maybe there was some element of the main character that I tweaked. And so I, I wrote that uh, I did that course and uh, put it up. And um, yeah, that, that, that was kind of a brief description of it. That is so yeah. cool. And if you learn nothing else from this, everyone, please understand, never make a deal with a demon. It just doesn't end yeah. well. <laughs> it never ends well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Especially how many books character. do you need to read? How many episodes of Supernatural do you need to watch to learn? This is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of one of those, it's, it's, it's like a power grab. It's like, you know, I know I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing this deal, but I, I, what, what I'm getting from the deal is so much better. Yeah. You know, so it's like it's worth the risk. It's worth the bodily <laughs> bodily harm and death. Yeah, and then it's not. <laughs> Until it's not. Yeah. And I found it that very, is really neat the way you did that. I found it very helpful because it was early on whenever I was yeah. writing the Urban Fantasy book. And um, so it was helpful. Plus, because you were doing all this research about Urban Fantasy, which is very helpful for me, you also put together or teamed up with some people to put together a database, right? Yeah. Yes. Tell yes, us I about did. that. That is so neat. Yeah, so I've, I've got some friends um, – John P. Logsdon, he's a great urban fantasy writer, and Ben Zakheim, also an urban fantasy writer. We had this idea. I actually met the guys at 20 Books Vegas, and um, I think I met them in passing. And then we happened to be in a Facebook group, and I was mentioning that I had this idea about an, an urban fantasy book database because part of the research I was doing in this course was I was finding that the best way to classify urban fantasy is actually not at all how Amazon or bookstores classify it. Mm. See, bookstores, they just look at urban fantasy and oh, all urban fantasy is the same. Yeah. And that's just not true. It's, it, there's so many different shades of it. Oh, and yeah. so I thought the best way to think about it is you've got, you, you've got, think about the main character instead. So like when I read the Dresden Files, I love it because I'm reading about a wizard. And when I read a shapeshifter story, I love it because of the shapeshifter. And my theory was that people who read urban fantasy are drawn to the type of character that is the lead. And so we created this database and it's called the urban fantasy database. And it's a database that has as many series as we could find for urban fantasy and authors who write urban fantasy are welcome to submit their books to it. We'll approve it. And we'll, the goal was to try to get as many urban fantasy series in the same place as possible. And what we could do then is we could put in the urban fantasy series, the author, but we could also put in the the type of supernatural character that the main hero is. We could also put in the profession. So if you like PIs, like if you like, mm -hmm. you know, Jim Butcher, Harry Dresden, well, wouldn't it be nice if you could click a button and find all of the books in the database that have a wizard PI? I love that. Like – that would be odd. That's like an urban fantasy reader's heaven, right? Yeah. And um, there's so many different types of supernatural characters too, like ghosts and um, all sorts of. Like we were we were getting all these put in here, and we're like, wow, this is like really really cool. Like what writers come up with, 
And so the whole purpose of it is it, you can you can slice and dice the database virtually any way you can think of to find your next favorite urban fantasy read. And it's cool for readers because they can use that to find books, but it's cool for writers because it's free marketing. Yeah, that is a really great thing because that, that is I mean, how many times do you finish, you know, like you're reading something and you get to the end of the series. And you're like, oh, there isn't another one of these, but I want to read something else like this. And then, exactly. and then you, you're kind of like stuck staring into the vast void of the internet going, where is that book I want to read? Because Goodreads will not save you. No. <laughs> no, we all know how, how successful we are with that. It's not as helpful <laughs> as you think but when you start out. <laughs> no. So um, we get close to wrapping up here. Not um, yet. we got a few more things. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, for uh, tips, do you have any tip? or tips you, you learned by doing that for urban fantasy authors, perhaps, that you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, I would love to share one tip. And that is that if you think about, actually, I have two tips. First things first, I, I always tell people, just write what you want to write. You know, it, that's more important than anything in terms of making money. Because if you write what you want to write, and then you get paid for that, that's a heck of a lot better than than writing about some type of character or in some genre that you're not aware of, you know, and then you don't like it. And then it starts to feel like a job mm -hmm. and that's no fun. That's just, that's, that's the whole reason we want to become full-time writers. So go, that it doesn't feel we'll go work another job you don't like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, fewer hours. exactly. I, I'll go back to being a claims adjuster if I'm going to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's no fun. <laughs> it always, makes my heart ache when I hear a traditional author who answers questions like the fans and they're like, are you going to write another book in the series? Are you going to write whatever? And they're I like, can't. well, I'm interested in it, but the publisher isn't. So, you know, they won't let oh, me. well, maybe someday. And like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. That, and, and that is, that is the, the epitome of how not to treat your fans. And this, this is this, you asked me what I had learned uh, from this. That was the first thing is write what you want to write. You know, and if, if you if you can't honor your fans and respect your fans, do you deserve to have a career? And I'm just being <laughs> just being honest, because you, you would not be where you are if, if it were not for the people who were paying you their hard earned money. You know, and mm -hmm. I, I, I have a problem with that. I really do. I, I mean, I think that. It's one thing if you've written a book for 20, if, you, if you're in a series that's 20, 30 books long and all of a sudden you don't want to write that anymore, that's a totally different story, right? right. Mm -hmm. But if, if you've written book one in a series and you've got a few people that want to read it and, and you're not going to write it because it's not commercially viable, you know, the few people that bought it, I mean, do something for them, right? Exactly. I don't know. I, this makes me a little bit of an alien compared to others, but that's that's the, the area of right to market where I don't like. Like, I, I don't like that part of it because it feels it feels like you can start to become tied. It's almost like golden handcuffs, like you're you're tied to a certain genre or you're side, tied to a certain series. And that is a really difficult tightrope to, to walk. So if you're going to have to walk that path, why not do it to writing something that you love? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, very good points. Well, I want actually to, to have him talk a bit about all of his uh, fiction. We've, we've touched a little bit on it, but I think we've touched more in this nonfiction. Mm. I really want to hear more about his fiction. Yeah, if you don't sure. mind. Yeah, yeah. So I, I write fiction from the perspective of underdogs. 
and these are yeah. characters who, you know, they, they, they're not the first people or things that you would think of when you read a story. So like my most, most popular series, it's called The Last Dragon Lord. And it's about a bloodthirsty dragon lord who is just a brutal dictator. And he gets overthrown. And the whole story is about him seeking revenge against the conspiracy that overthrew him. Mm-hmm. And I like, to, I like to describe him as one part smog from Lord of the Rings, <laughs> one part Richard III, oh. and one part Francis Underwood from House of Cards. So you're kind of dealing with a brutal dude here. Wow. <laughs> and he's trying to, trying to make his way in a future uh, that has forgotten him. Yeah, and in many ways he's an underdog. You know, he's not the he's not the character that you would think of when you think of a hero. But slowly he's he's kind of like a train wreck on every page. Like readers have told me, I, I can't stop turning the page, even though I know this is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that's that's one of my more popular series. Um, I have another series called Android X, and that takes place in the year 2300. It's a science fiction series. And that is about an android special agent who's hunting down rogue androids who are uh, on murdering, murdering sprees. And so it's uh, oh, wow. kind of like a buddy cop story between this android and his human engineer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it takes place in the year 2300, and uh, the world is a very different place. Uh, humans and androids living together after a pretty pretty awful civil war. They're a singularity that almost destroyed the world. And uh, that was a fun series to write as well. Neat. And both of those are available in audio. So. Robo body cop. But Robo Buddy Cop. <laughs> Boy, so that Robo Buddy fast. Cop, yes. yes. That's, <laughs> that, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, you, you've got the, the X as the main character. He's the android, and he's uh, super stoic and exactly what you'd think uh, an android would be. And um, his partner, Shortcut, is uh, kind of a naive 20-something who's really good at engineering but not so good with social skills. And mm. um, X has better social skills. Android, huh? Exactly. Imagine getting your dating advice from an android. That'd be kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it's I a think story I dated between those them. Guys. <laughs> <In the past>. <laughs> <laughs> I have no comment on that. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's my fiction in a nutshell. Um, you know, michaelleron.com is where you can find it. And uh, like I said, I like to write about underdogs. I've written other stories. I've written a story about a kick-ass teddy bear with a sword and shield. And, um, oh, what's that called? I haven't that heard is, about that one. Yeah. Uh, Sword Bear Chronicles, Theo I and the love Festival. love it. Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of like your underdog character. Um, I've written or another series that, um, yeah, I've written another series called uh, Moderation Online, and that's uh, about a group of terrorist vegetables attempting to take over an empire, uh, t- attempting to overthrow an empire of processed foods. <gasps> and so, oh, I'm rooting kinda for Kind of out him. there. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you want to root for vegetables. You can't not root for vegetables in a story like that. So. <laughs> or root for root vegetables. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, one of, one of the main characters is a uh, um, is an onion, so. Yeah, oh, that's cool. neat. And they have, I'm onion. sure he has a lot of layers. Sorry. He does. <laughs> he, has, he, actually, he actually has a mohawk, so it's kind of fun. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, well, you know, you were talking about, you know, your characters, uh, about the, the guy who's like, you know, the bad kind of dictator guy and and he goes through a transformation changing i was thinking about how we were talking about with so much of this urban fantasy you know people who are they're vampires or they're lycanthropes or whatever urban fantasy seems to deal with a lot of like transformative like transformation transformative characters characters undergoing transformation whether they're it's an internal transformation changing as they go through their their story or an actual physical transformation because of 
you know, some sort of fantasy element, but that, I mean, it sounds kind of like, it just hit me that that seems like kind of a theme that I hadn't thought about before <laughs> for those of us who enjoy the urban fantasy. Um, I, I think that is a great, great point. And I think the reason people love urban fantasy is because it, it feels like someone who could be living right next door. Yeah. And that is the, the great thing about it. Yeah. Even if they're a teddy bear or an onion. <laughs> exactly. Or a bunny. Or a stalk of broccoli. Yeah, or a bunny. Yeah. <laughs> One of these days I'm going to put a rabbit in my room. You've fantasy. got I, to do. Like, have, to find, have to find the right story. Though. Well, we call uh, our rabbit, her name's Dee. We call her uh, the queen of all the warrior buns. Nice. She's actually very sweet and lovable now, but she's still the queen of all the warrior buns because she, she can yeah. hold her own. It's been great talking to you again, Michael. We're going to have to wrap things up. But before we go, can you go ahead and tell us where people can find you and all your stuff online? Yes. Well, this first off, this has been a blast. Thank you for having me. If anyone is interested in my writing stuff, you can find me at authorlevelup.com. That's where my YouTube channel lives. All of my podcasts, all of my books for writers, if any of that stuff resonated with you, you can find it there. And then if you're interested in my fiction, you can find that at michaellaron.com. That's Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Laron, L-A-R-O-N-N. It's got links to all of my uh, all my novels that I mentioned today. Hi, this is Chris Fox, author of Right to Market in 5,000 Words Per Hour, and you are listening to Genretainment. Thanks again for taking the time to chat with us, Michael. And we'll have links on the show notes to help all of you find his books, podcasts, and YouTube channel. So that's it for today's genretainment. Watch out for our next episode. And until next, until next time. time. Pen monkey. <laughs>